You're standing in your yard, cleaning up some of the damage from a thunderstorm that rolled through overnight. As you bend over to pick up some branches, the thought suddenly strikes you. You're frozen in fear. What day is it? You ask yourself as you glance up and down the street. Could it be? No, it isn't. It couldn't be. Oh crap, did I get my days mixed up? From the corner of your eye, you see someone watching you. It's your neighbor, Hal. The one who turned in little Stan last year for badmouthing his parents behind their backs. Stan had been stoned by the HOA while his parents watched in horror, sobbing. It isn't what they had wanted for their son, but the HOA president had his rules and no one could break them. You start to sweat, but at the same time you're freezing, shivering. You glance at the pile of sticks by your feet and then you look at Hal and then you have a paralyzing realization. It is indeed the 17th day of the month, the only day of the month on which it is forbidden by the HOA president to pick up sticks. And you know that by the end of the day, the HOA president, Yahweh, will show up at your door with a mob behind him, each of them holding a stone. Hi, welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Well, it's been a little while since we've done this. I think the last episode we did was a big hullabaloo because we had Anthony on and we yeah. were like, I think we were so blown away that we got to have an interview with Anthony and Magda Bosco that we were like, well, we need like three weeks to recover from that. So yeah, like what do we was, do now? It was a pretty big thing. Yeah, it's like, how are we going to top that? So yeah, hopefully <laughs> yeah. you guys uh, had a chance to listen to that episode. It was a really fun interview. We really appreciate Anthony taking the time to to chat with us lowly podcasters. So that was pretty cool. So so how are things on your end? You've been surviving the summer. Yeah, it went really fast. And now school is almost starting up again. Oh, your school hasn't started yet? No, it starts after Labor Day. Oh, man, that's cool. Yeah. Our, Did your start? Yeah, like a week and a half ago, ours started. Oh. They start early here. You must then, get out earlier than us then. Yeah, they get out really early. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. Like my sister lives in Indiana and their school starts like really early, like the beginning of August. It's insane. That's weird. I was like, that kind of ruins your summer. But then your summer starts like at the beginning of May when no one else is off. This year, we got three kids in actual school and then the youngest is starting preschool. So in like a week, my wife will have three hours of actual time to herself. <laughs> Alone which, time. <laughs> yeah, which she has not had and you know, all this. So it'll be interesting for her. It'll yeah. be a, a big adjustment. So good. Well, the other thing we wanted to talk about a little bit is we've been getting some cool fan feedback from Apple Podcast reviews. So it's kind of a little a little plug for if you're listening regularly, definitely rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify. I love the last one that we got. Yeah, this one is <laughs> so funny. Like 
<laughs> this is the kind of like review you get that is like really head inflating. Yeah. She's like, I found this amazing podcast. I can't stop listening to it. I'm hooked. I'm just listening to six episodes in a row and I'm about to start number seven. And then here's the best comment. It's almost like crack. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I think that's pretty high praise that your podcast is. is like crack, you know. I'm always surprised when we get good reviews. Like, I don't know why. I just feel like I have imposter syndrome. So yeah. I'm like, nobody's listening to us. Nobody cares. Yeah. And people seem to really like it. And we get a lot of good feedback. So we definitely want your feedback. You know, message us on the Facebook page through Twitter, Instagram, write a review. We're just about to hit 4,000 downloads, I think. So maybe by the time this episode comes out, we'll hit 4,000 downloads. That's probably not that much in the grand scheme of things and like podcasting world. Yeah. But for us, yeah. two little nobodies, it's pretty good. Yeah. Two little schmoes. We're like, this is awesome. So, <laughs> yeah. and then the last little bit of housekeeping. So, we were considering like how to wrap up this like first season, you know, because podcasts that are cool do seasons. And we were like, hey, we should do that. So, so the next episode we're planning to be our season one finale. And the plan for that is we're going to do kind of an ask me anything type thing. So if you guys have questions about either things along the topics that we've discussed through the season or just, you know, questions you've wanted to ask about maybe a struggle you're having in your own deconstruction process, or if you want to ask us some ridiculous question, if you want to play stump the chump, you'll probably stump us. So it'll be fun. Like ask us a really hard theological question. And we have no problem saying we don't know. Let's go find out. So if you do have a question that you'd like us to talk about, um, shoot us an email at our email address, which is uh, flawedtheology at gmail.com. Or you could message us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, there's any number of ways to get a hold of us. And you can ask us personal questions too. Yeah. Like about our own deconstructions or why I'm recording from my master bedroom closet. Right. That kind of thing. Yeah. We, we're mostly an open book within reason, obviously, you know. We might yeah. not answer if it's too personal. <laughs> right. Although... I don't think either of us has a very strong filter, so we'll probably accidentally answer it. I have way more of a filter than you do, Phil. Oh, yeah, for sure. Way more. <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, oops, I shouldn't have said that, and then we'll have to edit it out. This episode, we're going to delve into the concept of fear. We're kind of going to talk about how fear is really the basis of Christianity, and really a lot of religions. But at the same time, it also teaches its followers and encourages its followers to not be afraid at the same time. So we're going to kind of talk about that dichotomy, try to dissect that a little bit. And then we've kind of decided to break this down into the types of ways that fear is used throughout like the Christianity life cycle, um, which is probably some like, I don't know, it makes me think of like flow charts and like something. Oh, I want to make a flow chart. Yeah, like a little circle. I can see one of those circular arrow things. We're going to talk about how some fears are the ones that draw you to the faith. Then there's fears that motivate you while you're in the faith. Then lastly, there are fears that kind of keep you from leaving the faith, the thing that mm -hmm. kind of holds you in. So we're going to talk about that. And then we'll talk about some of the tactics and manipulations that are used and how they're based in fear. And then we'll talk a little bit about how the Bible tells you to not be afraid and how it doesn't really make a lot of sense that <laughs> Christianity is based on fear, but then there's all this references to it not being based on fear and why you shouldn't be afraid. And then I think the last piece we'll talk about is how we got out. 
how we dealt with our own fears, if we still have lingering fears, and then hopefully some practical advice for people who are in their own journeys that may be dealing with their own fears. Yeah. And I just want to make a little disclaimer that this is not all forms of Christianity. They don't all use fear to this extent. I'm not sure if you can really get rid of fear completely in Christianity, right. but it is minimized in a lot of, of denominations and a lot of forms of Christianity. Yeah. Well, not every type or denomination of Christianity is so fear heavy, mm -hmm. but there's like kind of an underlayment of fear that's there. Yeah. That's kind of pervasive in, in all of Christianity, even like the really progressive types of, of Christianity has some measure of fear in there. It's just more subtle. <laughs> right. The goal of this whole episode is really to provide some kind of hope and direction for you guys on your own journey. So let's do it. Let's talk first about some of the fears that bring you to the faith. The fear that brings people into Christianity. That is a feature of Christianity. It's not a bug, right? So it's on purpose. It's not a byproduct. Right, right. I love that phrase because it's <laughs> it's funny to me for many levels. Well, for one, I'm in IT. So yeah, yeah. that's really funny to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what does fear actually mean? When we talk about fear and the fear that Christianity incites in us, what is that definition and how does it differ from how Christians put a spin on it? Right. Yeah. What does fear mean? And then how do Christians kind of redefine warp it? Yeah. How do they yeah. warp it? How do they redefine it? And you have to really redefine the word fear when you're going to use it in two different ways, which is what happens in Christianity. It's like, yeah. there's two types of fear. There's a good fear and then there's a bad fear. Right. We went to our old friend, Miriam Webster. The dictionary definition of fear is an unpleasant or often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. Yeah, I, I love the awareness of danger yeah. part of that yeah. because I think that really comes into play when you're like dealing with the Old Testament God character. Right, for <laughs> like, sure. You're kind of always aware like, oh, there's a danger here. Yeah. And then because I thought this was actually interesting that it was in the dictionary definition, the, the third definition of fear is a profound reverence and awe, especially towards God. Mm -hmm. Like, at what point did that land in the dictionary as a viable definition of fear? Like, that's just very interesting. Yeah, that is an interesting question. So that's kind of how Christians use fear in the Bible. And we'll talk about this in the Bible as a positive spin. Like, oh, there's some fear that's good. Like, you should fear the Lord. That's what you should do. But they don't really talk about the bad fear. And there's a lot more bad fear <laughs> than good fear, you know? The fear, as in being reverence and awe towards something, I feel that towards the universe, but I don't necessarily fear the universe. I kind of fear its unpredictability in terms of like tornadoes and stuff. Right. But when you're talking about a conscious entity that's God, who's supposed to be all loving and et cetera, that shouldn't come into play. You shouldn't have to like fear God's unpredictability because of his power. Right. Yeah, because God is supposed to be uh, a salient being that's capable of thinking and it has emotions and all this kind of stuff. There shouldn't be an unpredictability. You shouldn't have to walk on eggshells. Yeah. That's not reverence to me. That's still just fear. That's just awareness of danger. Right. Yeah. In several episodes, we've talked a lot about indoctrination. So how do you feel like indoctrination plays into the development of the fear response and the fear 
I mean, it's almost like a, a reflex, you know, fear becomes yeah, a reflex. Yeah, it ingrains it so deeply yeah. in your brain that you're right. It is like a reflex or an instinct. It's like you, you just can't get rid of it. You can't reason your way out of it necessarily. Or you can reason your way, but it takes longer. Well, and a lot of times you know that the fear that you have is irrational, but you can't do anything to quell it because it's so deeply ingrained yeah. in your psyche, you know, and that's kind of how your brain works. It's like a repeated exposure to stimulus is going to create a an autonomic response you know so if you've been conditioned and told your childhood you're a sinner you're going to go to hell that's not something you just flip the switch off no you're going to believe it you're going to internalize it especially at a young age you know because you don't have that ability to to separate right but fear really is it's the basis of Christian doctrine i started to think about this the most famous bible verse that almost everyone on the planet knows John 3.16, it starts out really nice with God so loved the world. And that's really what Christians want you to believe is what the message is. Mm -hmm. But then the verse gets progressively scarier. Yeah. I really never noticed this. I didn't either. So God so loved the world. Everyone give us a nice, warm Olaf hug. I like warm <laughs> hugs. Well, so does God. So then it goes into, okay, he gave his only begotten son, which as a Christian, I thought, oh, well, that's the ultimate expression of love. But now I look at him like, oh, that's it's a blood sacrifice. Yeah. He's talking about <laughs> killing his own kid. Like, that's not loving. And then, then you start tacking on the conditions like, okay, well, whosoever believes in me. Okay. So now you have to do something. Then the real kick in the ass at the end is if you do believe you shall not perish. Okay. You got to meet these conditions. And if you don't, you're going to perish, which is, you know, the obviously the opposite, but have eternal life. They kind of, they try to rosy it up at the end. And no matter what perish means, it doesn't say in this verse what perish means, but right. if it's the opposite of eternal life, it doesn't sound good, right? No, <laughs> and I, I didn't go into the Greek to look and see what perish means in that thing, which yeah. I'm sure it's not just, oh, it means you go away. It's bad. Something bad. Yeah. Long, long and bad. So our version of perish is all about eternal damnation. It's really a terror tactic. Yeah. To me, this is how Christianity was able to spread so much. There's a penalty for not being a part of the religion or not believing in the religion. So it's going to be more effective at spreading right. than other religions. So right. that's what I mean by it's a feature, not a bug. Right. They want to scare you. Of course, I'm talking about the fundamentalist evangelical Christianity of today. Yeah. Well, and if you think about how Christianity started and how it became a mainstream religion when Constantine basically made it the world religion in the Roman Empire, he did that as a means of controlling the population because Christians as a general population were kind of growing. They were gaining a little bit of traction. And so then he did something very interesting, which I think of is interesting from a political standpoint. Like he didn't try to stomp out their revolution. He basically joined their revolution and said, I'll keep these people in line by making everybody believe the same thing. So then they're not going to be a revolution anymore. They're going to be the status quo. Oh, interesting. Then because of that, Christianity spread through the whole Roman Empire, you know, and that's really what made Christianity a, a mainstream religion. Oh, that's fascinating. I think I read that in one of Bart Ehrman's books where he was talking about the historical context. But yeah, the whole idea of eternal damnation is like, well, if you don't believe, you're going to wind up in hell where there's this eternal fire. It's never quenched. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's different denominations that interpret hell in different ways from some believing it's an actual burning pit of fire. And some of them just say it's 
a void or separation from God or, or whatever. Right. But I think most of them say that believing in Jesus is the only way to that eternal life or the only way to avoid that void or punishment. Yes. Right? In, Protestantism, in Protestantism, yes, you believe in Jesus. You know. So how do you know if you actually believe in Jesus? Yeah. it's. I think that itself is enough to incite fear in people yeah. and anxiety, which is just kind of another side of fear. Yeah. It's like, well, how do you know if you did it right? And that's where you get this idea of rededication and or I'm lukewarm, which is another favorite yeah. amongst Christians too. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm not on fire for God. So I got to do something else to make sure I, I stay in the faith. Right. Because there's even a threat. It's in Revelation, right? Yeah. If you're lukewarm, he will spit you out of his mouth. Which is just gr gross anyway. <laughs> well, it's gross. But that in itself, that's like creating fear in each person thinking, I don't want to be lukewarm. I don't right. want to be spat out of his mouth. Yeah. I mean, that's a threat. That is a clear threat. And you mentioned this too, that like not all of Christianity doesn't lead with fear and hell right off the bat. But like when it comes down to it, when you ask them why they believe what they believe, it's all about heaven and hell. It's not about living here. It's not even about the Christian life. It's about, well, I'm going to believe this because if I'm wrong, I'm going to wind up in hell. Pascal's wager. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more about that afterlife insurance, you know? I wouldn't say all. Some of them have different reasons. But yeah, a lot of them, it's because they want to avoid hell. But do they really believe it though? In your experience, was hell like something that was a discussion in Lutheran tradition? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, it wasn't like hellfire and brimstone type, right? but it was definitely a focus and like, this is the clear consequence if you do not believe in Jesus Christ yeah. or if you do not follow him. And I would say that I had two sources of fear. One of them was I did not want to go to hell. Which was weird because I wasn't even sure if I believed in hell. So right. I was like scared of something that I didn't believe in. And I was scared I was going to go there because I didn't believe it. Right. Which is weird. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird circular <laughs> yeah, circular thing that you... Yeah, the other fear, which we can talk about this later, is the fear of losing my tribe. Right. I was thinking about this too in terms of like the emotional manipulation of evangelism and witnessing and how that's all based around fear when you're engaging unbelievers. This changed kind of later in fundamentalism where that they went to more of like the lifestyle evangelism thing where it's like, well, live a good life. And then people are going to look at your life and say, hey, I want to live like that guy. But the majority of early fundamentalism, you know, that I was exposed to, it was like scaring people <laughs> about the afterlife. I don't know how many altar calls I sat in where the hymns playing just as I am. And then, you know, the preacher is going to say, you know, if you died tonight, and stood before God, and he asked you why he should let you into his heaven, what would you say? I mean, and no matter how many times I prayed that prayer, that question scared the shit out of me. Like, mm -hmm. It really did. And, you know, we'd ask people those, that question on the street. I distinctly remember going door to door in neighborhoods and knocking on doors and asking people, complete strangers, that question. The fact that you're going around the neighborhood trying to scare people about yeah, hell to recruit them yeah yeah it's crazy like did you see april joy's one of her latest videos it was a trailer of this movie that depicted hell and it was solely meant to scare you yes what yeah, was that movie that. Uh, i can't remember um there's several of those like that were more about revelation like thief in the night and 
yeah. that whole series, but I can't remember the one that she referenced in that thing. But yeah, there was a lot of that kind of stuff, just pure terror. Yeah, it's it's so obvious that this is the tactic that they're using when they produce media like this. Right, yeah. I mean, I remember when I made my decision to get saved, quote unquote, it was all about hell. I mean, I was four mm-hmm. years old. Yeah, it was fear-based. I came out of my bedroom after hearing Jerry Falwell on TV basically ask this exact question. And I was laying in my bed and came out basically scared shitless going, I don't want to go to hell and kneeling beside my couch with my parents and praying some magical prayer just so I could avoid hell. Yeah. But that fear was drilled into you week after week. Yeah. You had no chance. No, no. It really boggles the mind really when I see kids nowadays that are in that environment because I'm just like, you don't see how destructive and disturbing that is. Yeah. But yeah, altar calls. Did they have altar calls in the Lutheran church? Was that a thing? No, that was not a thing. Oh, really? We did, I didn't know about altar calls. I didn't know about the rapture. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that I missed out on being a Lutheran. Yeah, you really missed out on some high-level trauma there. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. And rededication was always a big thing, too. Like, I don't know how many times I prayed a rededication prayer, which was just the salvation prayer again, just, just to make sure. So, yeah, that's kind of some of the fears that get you in. And then once you're in, there's a whole level of fear that basically it motivates your actions while you're a believer, while you're a Christian. Like everything that you do is really because you have to solidify your faith and make sure that you're doing everything that you should to remain in the faith. We talked a little bit about this earlier about being lukewarm, you know? Yeah. (laughs) That's a driving factor. I think you have direct experience with this, with actions being in the faith. I can't say that I do because for like 20 years, I basically just went to church every Sunday and came home and tried not to think about church the rest of the week (laughs) because it made me feel guilty and ashamed that I didn't really believe it. So I've learned so much from being in these Facebook groups and from listening to your stories that I'm always floored by the kinds of things that you guys went through, the kinds of things that you had to do to like, quote unquote, prove that you believe or that you're saved. It's crazy. Yeah. It's like pledging an eternal fraternity. You're like always having having to do something. But they sold it in such a way that you felt like, oh, this is just, you know, they use cool terms like discipleship. And like, there's a verse in Philippians where it's like, well, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, you know, it's built right in there. (laughs) Like work out your own salvation. Yeah. With fear and trembling. It shouldn't be that hard. Right, exactly. <laughs> you would have to but, fear and tremble while you do it. Right, but it's supposed to, it's supposed to be a free gift though too, but also work out your own <laughs> salvation. Right. There's so many different activities and I don't know how these were in your faith experience, you know, but like confessing your sins, was that a big topic for you? Like Oh, what do you mean like individually? Yeah, just like a lot of guilt-driven stuff like you've got to confess your sins because you have to remain No, there was none of that. Really? No, like we didn't have any individual like confess what you've done or yeah or you over here you did something bad it wasn't ever like that it was more like there was like a part in liturgy that was confession it was just like a general like right oh i'm a poor miserable miserable sinner and i've done horrible things and (laughs) right i'm nothing without you so please save me and blah 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 i mean i guess in a liturgical sense you could kind of just like recite that by rote and not have any like emotion in it oh it was absolutely that i'm sure some people took that to heart and you know there's a fear behind that like oh man what did i do this week in your church were you urged to unburden yourself of your sin on an individual basis oh absolutely like there was always like a, a drive for like personal accountability especially as a man 
you know, because of course the number one thing that a, a man has to worry about is lust and pornography and sexual sin. So there was always a drive to confess your, your sexual sins, your lust, mm. you know, when you took communion, there was always that part of the communion thing that was like, make sure that you don't have any sin because there's people that have died because they took communion unworthily. <laughs> now, imagine being a 10-year-old kid sitting in there in the church service trying to get your bread and grape juice and be like, oh shit, what sin did I do? So the Lutherans, they also believed that you could take communion unworthily, but it wasn't like on an individual basis. They, we had closed communion so that as long as you were a confirmed Missouri Synod Lutheran, mm. not even any other kind of Lutheran, you had to be oh, Missouri right. Synod Lutheran, right. then you could take communion. No no questions asked. Okay. So one time we went to, I my best friend was visiting and she's in school to become a priest. So she's she's a believer. Right. We went to my church on Sunday and she couldn't get communion. Right. They wouldn't let her have it. Meanwhile, I was able to go up and get communion and I was like pretty much an atheist. I, yeah, I was like in <laughs> denial. I was an in denial atheist. Right. Did they ask you for your membership card when you went up? You like, you showed them the card, <laughs> then they gave you the bread, you know? It's no, like, your home pastor knows you. Right. The, it was the honor system and no chance yeah. that your friend came from another Missouri Synod Lutheran church. The expectation is that you're supposed to tell the pastor beforehand, if you're a guest, oh, that man. I am a confirmed Missouri Synod Lutheran. I, I'm allowed to have communion. <laughs> oh my God. So, <laughs> so yeah, you've got to get on the list. It's like getting into the Roxbury, you know, I got to. I'm, yeah. on, I'm on i'm on the list Let I'm on me the in, list. You know? yeah that's <laughs> yes. man that's hilarious like <laughs> wow yeah so i mean the whole idea of obedience to god is based in fear there's this big thing in christianity about sacrifice and everything you do is a sacrifice and that is a sign that you're in the right place with god someone i don't know if you saw the facebook posts in one of the groups that we're in they broke down the story of abraham and isaac and I really liked how he, he talked about it because he talked about that whole thing was based in fear. And Abraham, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, Abraham, big guy in the Old Testament, got told by God, hey, you need to go sacrifice your only son, Isaac, on an altar to prove your your love for me, basically. And so Abraham was like, cool, trekked up the mountain. The kid went along with him and, you know, carrying his own wood that he was going to get burned on. The poor kid is on the altar with the knife in the air, according to the Bible story book that I can still clearly see the picture of with Abraham <laughs> with this big knife over his kid, you know, and then a voice booms out of the thicket, Abraham, stop. He did that all out of fear. And he was accustomed to that kind of thing because he didn't even bat an eyelash. He's like, oh, God wants me to go kill Isaac. And think about it from Isaac's perspective, yeah. how much fear he had. To right, be the I, one who was about to be sacrificed because of the big God in the sky. Yeah. And like, how do you come back from that, your relationship? Like, think about it from like a father-son standpoint. I don't envision that my kid would ever trust me ever <laughs> yeah. again if, hey, I traipsied you up a mountain, tied you on an altar and had a knife over your head. And then God stopped me. So everything is cool. Let's go to the ball game. Like, how do you recover from that? You don't. And I've seen a lot of people in these Facebook groups talking about that story and how it traumatized them as a child because they would hope that God would never tell their parents to kill them. Right. Because their parents would probably do it. Yeah. That's a really interesting question, too. Your parents are still Christians, right? Yes. And my parents are still Christians, granted, Lutheran and fundamentalist Baptist, different. I would love to sit down with my parents and say, hey, if God asked you right now, 
to kill. It couldn't be me because I'm the heathen kid. But hey, you got to take my youngest sister up to the mountain who's a sold out Jesus kid. You got to take her up the mountain and kill her to to get God's favor. Would you do it? I would just love to sit there and watch him wriggle. Mm. They would have to say yes. Yeah, they would have to. And I would like my sister to be in the room so she could be like, what? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, maybe this would be a good plan for Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. That'll be a fun Thanksgiving. You could really fuck up Thanksgiving. So, but yeah, I digress. But um, anyway, the idea of obedience and stuff is, is all based in fear. Yeah. And then the last part, and I think we'll talk about this more in the tactic section, but how we treat other people is all based in fear. This whole us versus them thing, the Christian life is a battle. It's a war. You've got to be vigilant against seen and unseen enemies, you know, side Bible nerd thing. Every verse that I wrote in the notes, I knew from my head, which was insane. I only had to look up a couple of the actual references, but like this one, like be sober, be vigilant, For your adversary, the devil prowls about seeking whom he may devour. And if you're a a biblical literalist and an errantist, you're going to take this to heart. Oh, absolutely. And everything around you, you're going to think is the devil prowling around. Yes, that's exactly how it was. Like everything was a battle. And Anybody, your boss could be the devil. Yeah, your boss Mm -hmm. is the devil. And if he wasn't a devil, then he was, you know, being influenced by Satan. I mean, you see this now in what's going on in our world with Christian nationalism now. Christian nationalism are up speaking every day about you know trans rights or whatever or these books that are in the schools and they're saying this is satan infiltrating our schools you have members of congress on the floor of the house saying things like satan is infiltrating our public schools and people take it like yeah well that's that's okay that's just what she believes or whatever it's like (laughs) it's anything that they don't like they call it satan this verse and the entire Bible gives them permission to do that. Right. They get their authority from the Bible. So anything that they don't agree with, they just call it Satan. It's Satan. Yeah. These are all things that like motivate you while you're in the faith. And then the last kind of part of the life cycle is like, well, what keeps you in? Mm -hmm. I think you touched on this at the beginning about losing tribe. Oh, that was, yeah, that's a big one for me. That's a big thing. And it's really like a cult tactic that keeps people scared to question I don't know about you, but I love cult documentaries. It's like my new obsession. I'm always <laughs> oh, yeah, watching like, them. Every time I that. find a new one, I'm like, oh, I tell my wife, I was like, we got to watch this one. And she finds them interesting too, but from a, for a different reason. I look at them, I'm going, how similar is this cult to my upbringing? That's what I do. Mm-hmm. And even the wackiest cults you can think of, I'm like, eh, there's some parallels there. Like I see them, you know, maybe not as crazy, but, but there's kind of like a couple tenets of cult tactics. You know, we've talked about them indoctrination, which is based in fear. The fear of thinking for yourself is basically the fear that's exploited there. Isolation, which exploits the fear of the outside world or the other deception, which exploits fear of the truth. Cause you're basically going to create a new truth. And then induced dependency, which basically encourages a cult member to be afraid of their own self. You know, you can't make your own decisions. This is huge in Christianity. Like, how many times do you hear somebody say, well, I I can't trust my own opinions. My heart is is deceitful and desperately wicked, or I've got to trust in the Lord and not lean on my own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. That's induced dependency. Well, they've taken away every tool that you have to free yourself from your situation. Right, yeah. They've handicapped you. And I think that the fail-safe of any situation, not just cults, well, it's debatable whether all of Christianity is a cult. (laughs) Right. But but the the last fail-safe is losing your tribe. Fear of losing your tribe. That's what kept me in for probably the last seven or eight years that I was going to church. Yeah. I didn't want to disappoint 
well, you know, if it was a cult, it would be like disappointing the leader. I didn't want to disappoint my family, my parents. I didn't want to be the one, the only one to ever leave Christianity. Right. Which, you know, indirectly is disappointing the leader, you know, because God was the leader of your parents. And But yeah, the losing of the tribe is is a huge thing because it's a safety net. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about a biological family and you can widen that out to your church family. Like for me, my my church thing was my whole life. Who I was, was church and my belief system, like everything I had. I didn't have anything outside of church. So was this a big fear for you, losing the tribe? Or was it more like losing your identity? It was more losing the identity. Okay. Even later on, like as I was kind of deconstructing kind of what held me into the last, mine was probably the same thing, like the last seven or eight years when I kind of landed in progressive Christianity, I was still looking for that tribe thing, probably unconsciously for me, because I don't think I was self-aware enough to know that's what I was looking for until I got into that progressive Christianity where, and they talked about, you know, everyone having that need for community. That was like a term that I hadn't heard in fundamentalism, the idea of community being like a good thing. So like I found community in this progressive church I put my whole life into that. Then it became about losing that community, you know, and then subsequently mm-hmm. my identity. Cause it's like, well, if I'm not doing all these things because I love God, who the hell who am, am I? I? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the idea of losing your tribe, it, it's paralyzing, you know? Yeah. I have to say, to be fair to my family, they have not treated me any differently at all since I told them that I'm an atheist. So I did not lose my tribe. They love me unconditionally. So I feel really fortunate. Even your immediate family? Yeah. Oh, interesting. They still love me just as much as they did before. And they don't treat me any differently from my siblings who do believe. That's good. Yeah. They're awesome. My experience has been different. I wouldn't say that I've lost my family. I still have some relationship with them, but they've never engaged me to be like, hey, tell us about where you are, you know, they gave me the like, oh, we still love you no matter what. But then the communication basically dropped off. Yeah, well, my my family doesn't really engage me with religion too much. My dad a little bit, but not in a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I often wonder, like, how would it be? Like, could I really articulate to them the why of everything in a way that wouldn't be contrarian? And so that's partly why I don't push the issue either, because I don't think there's a lot to be gained there. No, the only thing I could see doing is maybe doing street epistemology type stuff on them. Right. We're talking about what they believe, not what we do or do not believe. Right. But wow, we have a lot of tangents today. That's okay. This is fun. Um, And I think the last thing we were going to talk about in this section was like how and why deconversion and deconstruction is really the ultimate way of overcoming fear, because being willing to lose your tribe and potentially give up all that safety net and and comfort. The afterlife. Yeah, giving up all of that stuff takes a measure of courage mm-hmm. that every time I think about it, I'm like, it's kind of a big deal, you know? There's <laughs> like, a lot to overcome there. delve into fear tactics and manipulations. And we'll, we'll try to tie these two kind of the categories we talked about. Let's talk about doubting. That's a good one. <sighs> yeah. I had a big fear of doubting, especially as a kid, I think, because mm. of those verses in the Bible that say you need to enter the kingdom like a child mm-hmm. and human reason is bad. And you know, my <laughs> dad was always warning me about that kind of stuff. Right. But when my mom first found out that I was asking 
a lot of hard questions about Christianity. I was already an atheist by this point, but she didn't know that. And she said to me, do you know what the one unforgivable sin is? And I was like, I had to think a minute and I was like, uh, it's like blaspheming the Holy Spirit or something. And she's mm. like, yes. And she gave me this look like, that's what you're doing. <laughs> you're like, doing okay. it. Yeah. yeah. So that that is a verse in Matthew, right? Yeah. Matthew 12, 31. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. So when I looked up what exactly blaspheming the Holy Spirit is, according to biola.edu, it says ongoing hardening of your heart against the Holy Spirit who is trying to lead you to repent of sin and believe in Christ. Okay, so that makes me think like the minute you start to question Christ or your belief in Christ, is that blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Yeah. And so like you start spiraling, like you start thinking, oh no, did I just do it? Did I just blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Am I screwed? Right. It's a quick, like, can I recover this? Because right. you told me it was unforgivable. So can I come back from this? That's interesting because I always heard, you know, the unforgivable sin was, you know, the same thing, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is basically interpreted a lot of different ways, basically saying that you, that there was no God or that's the only thing that was unforgivable. But then mm -hmm. what was funny about it is you hear all manner of stories of people who were supposed atheists, you know, that became Christians. And they're supposedly saved. And they're forgiven. The dude on the cross. Right. It would be like if Richard Dawkins decided to become a Christian. Paul. Sorry, she's throwing names out there, but Paul. Right. Like Paul was killing Christians. I'm pretty yeah. sure that that falls right under blaspheming, you know, yeah. like, but he was forgiven. And if you ask any Christian, say, well, if you lived a horrible blaspheming life your whole life, and then you confessed that Jesus was Lord on your deathbed, you would go to heaven. That's a whole driving factor. So the unforgivable sin is, is bullshit, basically, because yeah. it, it wasn't really unforgivable. It was just a scare tactic to keep you in. Yeah. A scare That's tactic. a scare tactic yeah. to yeah. say you can't leave because if you, you've already tasted of the goodness of God. So now if you leave it, then that's what's unforgivable. Those heathen people, they've never experienced it. So they're, they're allowed to be forgiven. You're right. Because in Hebrews 6, 4, I'm paraphrasing. It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have <laughs> tasted the heavenly gift and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So yeah, yeah. exactly what you just said. Yeah. You get one chance and that's it. One shot. <laughs> so you can't go, you can't come back. Yeah. So don't screw it up. Don't even begin to doubt because this is your only chance. Right. And if God knows your thoughts anyway, then you can't even think the blasphemous thought. Yeah. Which is another element of fear. Right. Yeah. I can't control my thoughts. So yeah, you can control what comes out of your mouth, but you can't control what you think. Right. That's a scary thought that there's somebody listening to your thoughts all the time. Right. That's really scary. Yeah. Super scary. Here's your favorite topic because it's so foreign to you, <laughs> the rapture and the anxiety that the rapture causes. So, Oh, you know what? If The rapture. So I didn't really learn about the rapture until after I was already deconverted. But if I had learned about the rapture before, I think I would have just been like, no, that's not real. Like nobody really believes that, right? Uh, <laughs> that's, that's just crazy. Nobody actually believes that, but they do. Oh yeah, they do. I did hardcore even later in my Christian life, I was like way into like eschatology, which is the study of end thing, end times and stuff like that. Not poop. Yeah, not poop. That's you know something else. In case for you lovely people that don't know what the rapture is, the idea of the rapture is that at some point in some time unknown, there would be a horn blast from heaven and Jesus would come down and just like catch up all the Christians that were alive at the time that he came back and you would all go to heaven. So the word rapture is never in the Bible, but the, the concept is referenced a couple of times in, 
in Thessalonians, I think, where it says, you know, there's people who are alive and remain when Jesus comes back and he's going to catch them up, you know, and they get to go to heaven. The idea that that could happen at any time, anywhere scared the dog shit out of me. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I distinctly remember coming downstairs from my room and like not being able to find my parents sometime and like looking around for piles of clothes. And I feel like some preacher probably said this, you know, it was like a joke in a sermon, like, oh yeah, there's going to be piles of clothes everywhere because (laughs) we're going to get raptured up and, you know, because there's no, yeah, you're going to be naked. So there's, I'm looking around for piles of clothes, you know, because I believe the shit was going to happen like at any time. And then the idea of like, well, he could come back at any time. What if you're doing some shit you're not supposed to be doing when he comes back, like doing something perverse, like masturbating or thinking something sexual, or I would always hope that he's going to come back when I'm doing my quiet time. Cause then I'm like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That fear was real. <laughs> I'm laughing about it now only because I can remember the fear and it being palpable. And I can't even imagine this kind of fear. We watched those christian horror movies that were all about you know the end times and the rapture i think i want to say it was my 11th birthday we watched thief in the night with me and a bunch of kids from my christian school as my at my birthday party which i think was probably the first time i actually had a birthday party with kids because my parents were weird like that but like here's a bunch of 11 year old kids sitting around in my house watching this badly produced terror movie about thief of the night because you know jesus was going to come back like a thief in the night snatch up all the christians and then it was going to be chaos because the only people left on earth were or these heathens and actually it sounds like it'd be kind of nice to be here after they're all gone <laughs> seriously yeah <laughs> not all of them i there are christians i love The idea of, of who God is breeds fear. Yeah. The character of God breeds fear. Fearing the Lord is, it's literally a biblical mandate. The idea of fearing the Lord or fear the fear of God, all that kind of stuff is mentioned 490 times in the Bible. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of times. And like we put together this list of the things that God did and keep in mind, some of these are New Testament things, and some of them are Old Testament things, so you can't use the horseshit excuse, oh, that was the Old Testament God. New Testament God didn't do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Let's go through some of these. I, I love some of these. <laughs> the first one's my favorite. It's the ab- it's my absolute favorite one. It is your favorite. You're always I referencing this I keep bringing it one. up. <laughs> All right, so God strands the Israelites in the desert for 40 years and makes them basically walk in circles. All right, it's hot. They don't have any food. They don't have any water except for the meager amount they can get in the desert or what God gives them, they're tired, they're hungry, and they ask God for food. And instead of giving them more food, he throws venomous snakes at them. They get bit and die. I I don't know how many die. Do you remember? I don't remember either. Holy shit. If we ever come up with merch for this podcast, it's going to (laughs) be... It's going to be throwing snakes. That's going to be the thing, like snakes in space or like Let's do it. throwing snakes, something like that. But yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Like real loving. Just replace God with an earthly father and see how horrible that sounds. Right. It's, it's abusive and it, it just causes fear. Yeah. And then you've got the whole uh, the flood story. God drowned the whole world. Whether you believe it's a worldwide flood or a localized flood, whatever, God flooded a lot of people and killed everyone at the known in the known world except for eight people 
And think about God holding little babies' heads under water in a bathtub. Think about him doing that and then them right. struggling and trying to and kicking and trying to get out from under the water. That's basically what he did to every single person. Yeah. That's how it felt to every person. Right. You've got Sodom and Gomorrah, which he roasted because of their their sin. This is a great story about Nadab and Abihu being burned alive. Are you familiar with this story? I'm um Oh, my cousin told me about this story. Yeah, so this is a good one. So they're like the sons of Aaron, who is you know the high priest at the time, who's the only person who's supposed to make sacrifices to God. And they decide that they're good enough to do the sacrifices because they're the high priest's son. So they go and make a sacrifice. And you know, God's not a big fan of you like starting to feel high and mighty. So God <laughs> just sends an all-consuming fire from heaven that chars these dudes where they stood. <laughs> burned them right up because yep. they were prideful and thought that they could offer a sacrifice. Yep. Crazy. He also killed that married couple in the temple. This is uh, the temple story. Yeah. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied about the amount of money that they had. Yeah. And so God killed them. Yeah, God killed them. They said they gave something to the church and it wasn't the right amount. So wasn't this the origin of the soundbite? Yes, which, it is. Which I probably can't generate now, but you'll have to go back to <laughs> We'll early. play it right now. <laughs> yeah, there's the like broad spectrum genocide. I love how you put that broad spectrum. <laughs> It's like antibiotics. Right. <laughs> the killing of entire cities and leaving no one alive. That's pretty scary. Yeah. Like how many stories did you see in the Bible where God said to the Israelites, go into this town and kill yeah. everything, even the animals, donkeys, like what they ever do. Yeah. Like you're killing everything. And the sex slave thing too. Oh yeah. I would rather be dead than being right. captured as a sex slave. Yeah. A couple of the cities are like, here, kill everybody except for keep the virgins for yourselves. Like, Yeah. So the next one I like because I think it really hits home the fact that God is pretty much an alcoholic, abusive parent who's unpredictable and you don't know what they're going to do next. They set these arbitrary rules. Okay. Right. So I came up with a list of these arbitrary rules. Yeah. No one may touch the ark lest they drop dead, <laughs> even if it's with good intentions. I don't remember the guy's name who tried to keep the ark from falling and then God struck him down because yeah. he touched the ark. You can't touch the ark of the covenant. That means intentions don't matter. Yeah. It's going to fall in a ditch. But yeah. The guy was so dedicated to the ark, he was going to try to catch this heavy ass <laughs> box so it didn't hit the ground. Yeah. And God was like, nope, fuck you, you're dead. It could have been just a reflex. Yes. Like he did it without thinking. And God's like, nope, you're dead. Nope, you're dead. So another arbitrary rule, there can be no forgiveness without blood. We've talked about that before. Right. No homosexuality. Also arbitrary. Right. And the punishment in the Old Testament was stoning. Yes. Actually, Paul said something about it too. So New Testament as well. Yes. There's no work on an arbitrary day of the week, the Sabbath. Remember the guy who picked up sticks on the Sabbath? Yeah. He got stoned. Stoned. Picked up sticks, stoned. Uh, this one's for you. Rebellious children should be stoned. Oh, I was specifically threatened with this one. Like my parents would remind me frequently, oh, be glad this is an Old Testament times or we'd be taking you out to the city gates. Shit you not. That oh, definitely happened. Like, see, they're using it as a fear tactic. Yeah, it's a fear tactic. And there's so many more of these, like the whole Levitical law is like just full of arbitrary rules. And, you know, yeah, it's like you're kind of afraid, am I going to accidentally break a rule and get beaten right. for it? Right. And the list goes on. Here's another good New Testament one. Herod was killed by God and eaten by worms because people thought that he was like so such a great speaker. They said he's a voice of a God. And then because Herod didn't give praise to God, the angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms. He got death by worms. Like what a shitty way to go for this well, guy. I, like, that was confusing to me. Did he die first and then he got eaten by worms or the worms well, were the cause of death? Well, the thing that I read when they were talking about this were saying that the worms were the cause of death. So I'm not sure, you know, they're trying to say oh. this was a, a arduous and painful death, you know, but either way, 
it still sucks. Like eating by worms is probably even worse. Yeah, it sounds slow. Yeah. <laughs> he drowned an entire army, the Egyptian army in Exodus. He talked from a burning bush. That's you know kind of some scary shit if your bushes started talking to you. <laughs> you know, that's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, the the plagues are good, you know, in the the plagues of Egypt. He, he did all kind mm-hmm. of horrible shit to the Egyptians there, including killing the firstborn. Didn't he harden Pharaoh's heart so that he could do all these plagues? Right. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to like show off and scare people. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's also interesting. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that way he could send another mean thing. Yeah. He's like, no, I'm not done yet. Yeah, Pharaoh's like, oh no, no more frogs. And then God was like, oh no, there's going to be something else because I, <laughs> I just hardened your heart. Like, what? Ooh, the- nice sound effect. Oh, yeah. That's a different one. Slightly different than the earlier <laughs> uh, Cardi B sound. <laughs> oh, yeah. He sends lions to gobble up people. Oh, and then, I mean, this one we've talked about you know this is full new testament he prepared a lake of fire where his enemies are be tortured for all eternity so yeah great sounds lovely i mean god's a scary character like have you ever read the book by dan barker which one i'm halfway through godless oh it's the second one it's called god the most i can't read the title the the scariest character in all of fiction or something like that Ooh, that sounds fun but yeah i think it goes into a lot more of these things you can add that to the reading list good nighttime reading so, <laughs> yeah so you take okay god's scary as shit mm-hmm. and then if that doesn't scare you which mostly none of the scary stuff about god scares christians because they're like oh well that was all the heathens that he did that to so we've got to have something to be keep them in line so you've got satan the demonic realm spiritual warfare that's all fear I mean, we talked about it earlier, he's seeking whom he may devour. You know, I, I remember seeing yeah. like these pictures, you know, Satan prowling around like a lion, you know, and he's just hiding around the corner, like the ghost in the darkness. And then everything was a spiritual battle. This verse in Ephesians is like, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This verse was like a staple of my mm. Christian life. Like you're always battling. And again, if you're taking this all literally right then that has scary consequences for your actual life you're always looking around the corner you're like right who's there it affects how you interact with people you're battling anything that is perceived as a threat yeah to your belief system like uh, we kind of touched on this like these are some things that are demonic realm things nowadays that christians are fighting against prayer in schools that was a huge one even when i was like in college it's like oh they took prayer out of schools that's why our schools are all garbage now you know and then covid hit and now oh the vaccine and all that stuff well that's all demonic realm stuff public schools and university those are all like the havens of demonic warfare i think april had a great (laughs) video about this too did you see that one recently about what uh christians think that public universities are like oh yeah we should put the link to it because it's freaking hilarious it's funny they're gonna groom you to to hate god the gay agenda demonic the left demonic demonic progressive churches and liberal and inclusive theology demonic abortion demonic planned parenthood (laughs) demonic it's no wonder these people walk around so angry all the time and scared yeah you're like i gotta fight everything just to stay alive yeah they must be exhausted yeah i'm glad i don't give a shit about any of that stuff now it's it's kind of nice Okay, we talked about all the things we should be afraid of as a Christian. Now, at the same time, God tells us- Fear not. 365 times, God says, fear not, which is also fewer 
then the times he says, fear me. So you kind of see what is actually more important, you know? So the Christian life is one that's rooted in fear, but at the same time, you're instructed to not be afraid. So how are you supposed to be afraid and unafraid at the same time? Especially when you take into account all the demonstrably horrible things that God did. Right. In addition to all the times it says to fear God, he has a bad track record. Yeah. It's kind of hard not to fear somebody like that, to fear that character. If you think that character is real and you literally believe it, you're going to fear that. Yeah. One of the probably most used verses about fear is like, well, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. So I'm going to go ahead and blaspheme right now. And I'm going to rewrite that verse the way I think it should be. I'm going to say, God did give us the spirit of fear and we are able to explain it away with cognitive dissonance, magical thinking, and mental gymnastics. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's that's our uh, that's going to be our first verse in the Flawed Theology Podcast Bible. Chapter one, verse one. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be the first verse. But the only way you can hold two conflicting ideas at the same time is through cognitive dissonance. Yeah, well, the American Psychological Association defines cognitive dissonance as an unpleasant psychological <laughs> state resulting from inconsistency between two or more elements in a cognitive system. So tension of having two different belief components, I'll say, yeah, present in your mind at the same time. I think we've all had cognitive dissonance at one point or another oh, in our abs- life. Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah, but if you're believing in the God of the Bible and you're also believing that that God is love and you shouldn't be afraid, there's some major cognitive dissonance going on. It's like a war in your brain. And how do you resolve that? Yeah. And you can only relieve that tension in a couple of different ways. You can either reject one of the two things, which is what I think what a lot of Christians do about the scary stuff of God. They just kind of write that off yeah. and say it's not real. Right. Or they explain it away by saying, oh, that's the Old Testament God. Or they avoid new information, which is what you also see a lot of people doing. It's like you try to show someone facts or evidence. They're like, no, don't show me that. I'm not interested because I already know what I believe. Well, I think a lot of people who go to church don't necessarily read the Bible. Right. I was one of them. Mm -hmm. I did not enjoy reading the Bible. So I didn't know about a lot of these Old Testament things and the qualities of God and the things that he did. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of people in the church pews right now do not know about this. Yeah. And if you try to show them, they would not want to see it. No, they wouldn't, because then they then they would have to wrestle with it and say, "Oh, well, I didn't know that was in there," or they'll explain it away by saying, "Well, there must be some reason for that thing. I don't know what it is, but you know, I trust my pastor who's read all this stuff." Yeah, yeah. And the second part is magical thinking. The power of prayer is part of that magical thinking. It's like, well, I can just pray about things. And I don't have to be afraid of them. You know, they use this to dismiss a lot of like mental health disorders and stuff like that. Or COVID. Yeah, I'll just pray out of it. It's fine. It's no idea. Like, or believing that you're because you're saved, now it gives you some kind of connection to God that prevents you from being afraid of him. Yeah. Okay. That's magical. And then lastly, the hope of heaven. It's like, well, it, none of this matters anyway, because I'm going to heaven. So I don't care about all that stuff, even if it's in there. As long as I go to heaven, that's all that matters. This is all just mental gymnastics. Yeah. Every single tactic that you have to employ to resolve these uh, two components that are dissonant, it's yeah. all gymnastics. And it really is exhausting. It really is. Yeah. There was just too much of it. To me, it was like taping together all these components of Christianity, and they didn't fit. Right. I was like holding them and trying to force them to fit. And that took so much effort. And when I just finally let go and all the pieces fell away, I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to be at peace. Yeah. It's like having two different thousand piece puzzles and trying to put them together in one puzzle. Yeah. You're like, these pieces don't fit. Like, And then when you realize that they don't fit, you don't just keep trying. You just say, 
I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, you walk away. And you, maybe you sort out the two puzzles and then that's kind of gives you clarity, you know? Yeah, so right. let's talk about how we overcame these fears and how to address them. Do you have any kind of lingering fears from, from your Christian life? No, not at all. No, the only two fears I ever had were of hell. And that was only like a half fear because I didn't totally believe it anyway. And then right. the biggest one was losing my tribe. I did not right. lose my tribe. And I definitely don't believe in hell. Once you stop believing in hell, the consequences for unbelief just evaporate. Yeah. So no, I have no more fears. Do you? I don't have anything like about like hell or the afterlife or rapture like I did. You know, on occasion I'll have a thought that makes me think like, oh, well, maybe I could accept some like form of faith, you know, kind of like my old progressive Christianity. But once I realized that that was just a step in escaping the fear, I'm like, well, I don't need that either. Mm -hmm. You know, I basically reframed my Christian life to alleviate the fears. So I kind of re left out the part I didn't like, again, to alleviate the cognitive dissonance. I just left out the shit I didn't like and embraced the stuff that I did. Oh, interesting. So I don't have those fears anymore. Yeah. Like, I feel like I have fears about other things, but they're not irrational to the point of like being crippling. You know, there's certain things I'm, I got four kids. I'm afraid for the lives of my kids sometimes, you know, oh, yeah. every time I put them on the bus to go to school, I'm like, uh -huh. oh God, you know, like, oh, just to clarify, know. I didn't mean I have zero fears. Oh, right. I just meant I have no fears about religion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have tons of fears in other aspects of my life. Yeah. The further you removed, you get from your faith life, the fears definitely lessen depending on the level of indoctrination you had, depending on your own mental constitution, you know, and, and the things that you surround yourself with. One of the things I think that's a key strategy is to focus on reality and evidence. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of people on uh, some of our Facebook groups that like are really struggling with stuff. And yeah. I love Lars, who we've had oh, I love on the him. show. So I love how he responds to almost all of this. Yes. One person's things. He goes, can you demonstrate this? Yeah. He's just, what <laughs> evidence do you have that it's true? Yeah. And if you can just come to every thing that starts fear and say, well, what evidence do you have that it's true? And there is none that almost immediately alleviates that feeling of fear in that moment. It doesn't mean it's going to go away right away, but the more that you can enforce reality backed up by evidence, then the less you have to be afraid of. Yeah. Another thing Lars says a lot of the time is, are there any good reasons to believe this? Right. And that's another thing I like to keep saying in my head, not just about religious things, but anything. Yeah. Are there good reasons to believe this? Right. And then, you know, recognizing that there's a difference between rational and irrational fears, and then training yourself to recognize the difference between the two. There are certain things that fear is useful for, you know, survival instinct. There are rational fears that you can have as a human being. But if you're escaping Christianity, there's a lot of irrational fears that you don't need to be afraid of. So try to help separate those two sections of fear and compartmentalize them, I guess, is a good way to put it. And there's a lot of good resources out there, books. You mentioned um, Love Wins by Rob Bell. Yeah, I've never read it. It's really good. I actually... That's over on the shelf somewhere there too. But you know it's good because all of Christianity revolted against that book because he basically made the concept that hell wasn't real. And he is a Christian, right? The author. I still think he would consider himself a Christian, but probably on a different spectrum than he was. What's some other resources? Bart Ehrman, Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife. 
that's one that's on my reading list. I have not read it yet. But both of those books, I think, are good at dissecting the belief in hell. And mm -hmm. when you find out how it came about and how it was made, it's like finding out about the boogeyman and who the boogeyman really is. It's hard to be scared of the boogeyman when you find out he was just made from like toothpicks and cotton balls. Right. <laughs> Yeah. You're not going to be scared of that anymore. Yeah, it's like the the noise when you look under your bed with a flashlight and you see there's nothing under there. It's like okay, well I yeah. don't have to be afraid anymore. So and there's also a podcast episode of Counter Apologetics called Hell and Eternal Conscious Torment, but that was really good. We'll link to all these in the show notes for you guys to find. So a couple other ideas, you know, surround yourself with like-minded people who know your struggle. And not in the way that it's an echo chamber where you're only going to hear what you want to hear. Right. But that's key. An empathic community that knows what you've been through and they've been through it themselves. There's people across a whole spectrum of deconversion and deconstruction and their take on things is going to be just a little bit different. And hearing those different struggles will help you feel like, oh, I'm not alone in this. There's other people that have done this. Super useful. And don't be afraid to ask the dangerous questions. Yeah, those dangerous questions. When you're on your path to, of deconstruction, you're free to ask whatever questions you want. You don't have to feel guilty about it. You don't have to feel ashamed. There is nothing that's off limits. Don't be afraid to ask about anything. That's the key to, to dissolving those fears. Get to the root of them. Ask the questions. Well, I think that is everything we were going to talk about. I don't usually do this, but like I was thinking this kind of topic needs like a little wrap up. So I kind of wrote this out. So I'm kind of just going to read it. The idea behind all religion is control and conformity. Fear is the best way to control a group of people. As we have discussed, escaping Christianity can and should lead to a life without fear, or more accurately, a life that understands the place and role that rational fear should have. We don't need to live in fear of a God who will smite us and send us to hell for not accepting him. We do not need to live in fear of the people around us who are different from us. We do not need to fear a demonic realm where everything that we do has some kind of eternal and invisible implication. As the great philosopher Yoda said, fear is the path to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> we want to live our lives in the light of logic and reason. We hope, we really do. We hope this episode shines a bit of light on the dark side of Christianity and that it helps you to see that you have light because we all have light and you are light. Oh, Phil, that was beautiful. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. Tune in next time where we will continue to tackle the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Follow us at theflawedtheologypodcast.com and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Rate and review us on Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might find us. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. hope that you enjoyed this episode anything else you want to chime in you've got your mouth open there I, so i don't <laughs> know if you just you, want i'm gonna ask you 
Can I play inspirational music behind your little closing statement there? Oh, sure. I don't care if you want that to. That would be so good. It'll be like, like some a, cheesy music, cheesy, inspirational music, new age, yeah. Yanni, like Yanni music. Actually, you should play just as I am behind it. Maybe like it, this is the altar call for reason. Oh, that would be mm. ironic. And I need some nice organ music. Cleverly ironic. <laughs> or maybe some Star Wars music. Right. Foreshadowing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then you get to the Yoda part and they're like, oh, no, I'm oh why are they doing that? Those people are so <laughs> weird. <laughs> oh, good times. <laughs>